Welcome to the Ewok Podcast, the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church with Robbie Locke. We're glad you're here, and we hope that this podcast is a blessing to your life and helps you walk closer to God. Our goal is to help you draw close to God and understand Scripture better in its entirety. Well, without further ado, here's Robbie. My text for this morning is found in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 14. As I mentioned before, we're taking a little break from our study in 1 John. We will pick up in chapter 3 of 1 John next Sunday morning, Lord willing. We read this text, 2 Samuel 16, 5 down through 14 at the time of our scripture reading. So I'm not going to reread the entire passage right now, but we will be looking at several specific verses in the passage as we go along. But let me begin by asking you a very simple question. Have you ever asked the question, why? Hmm? Why am I sick? Why did my loved one die? Why am I being falsely accused? Why did my best friend betray me? These are questions that people often ask, and there are a multitude of others. Even our Lord Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you have asked the question why, well, congratulations, you've just demonstrated you're part of the human race, because we all ask why at one time or another. Why does God permit us to face trials? What is his ultimate purpose in them? Could I suggest to you this morning that God has a higher purpose in trials then perhaps we recognize immediately when we're going through it. When we enter a trial, often the only thing we want is the solution. But you know from experience that in life, when trials come, some may be brief, but most of them are quite long. And answers don't come quickly. And in fact, sometimes we never fully understand why that specific trial has come into our lives. So the question again, why? Why does God permit us to face trials? I think if we look at the life of King David in this passage today, we're going to glean insights from his experience And have a greater sense of what God's higher purpose might be in the trials that we face. I need to give you a little bit of background here for you to understand where David is at at this moment in his life. Now, he is the king of Israel. However, Absalom, his son, had acted treacherously and had stolen the throne of Israel from his father David. You notice that when he says in verse 11, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. Absalom didn't just take the throne away from his father, but he actively sought to have his father put to death to secure his position upon the throne so that David could never come back in the future and retake the throne. David, as a result of Absalom's opposition, escapes into the wilderness Think about this. Go from the throne to a cave. 
go from luxury to a desert experience where, frankly, in the desert, you are dependent upon God for your most basic necessities. Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, for however long you are there. David's son had rebelled against him and taken the throne, but David's most faithful counselor, whose name was Ahithophel, he had defected to Absalom's side. So David could say, as he did often in the Psalms, that he had been betrayed by a well-beloved friend. Another individual who was showing opposition to David was Mephibosheth, who was Saul's son, who after Saul's death and Jonathan's death had taken Mephibosheth into his home and had treated him like a son and provided for him. But when all of this turmoil takes place, we find that Mephibosheth seems to have some aspiration to perhaps take David's throne as well. So we're seeing David being treated very poorly by a son, by a best friend, and by a man who he had shown great mercy and kindness to. Generally, when a king like Saul or, or, would die, most of his descendants were put to death. But David took Mephibosheth in, and now Mephibosheth is causing additional difficulties as well. Now, the question is, I mean, with all of that going on in David's life, what more could possibly happen to David? And my response to that question is, apparently plenty could happen more to him. Have you ever been in that experience where you're entering into a trial, and before you know, a second trial comes on top, and then a third on top of that, and it just seems like things are piling on one after another? This is David's experience. Now, if you take the notes in your bulletin and follow along, you can see several things that I want you to note from this passage. First of all, identifying the trial. What is this newest trial that David is going to face? And Shimei, who is a descendant of King Saul, is publicly attacking and falsely accusing David. Shimei, the son of Gera, of the house of Saul, publicly and falsely accuses David of murder and of being a man of Belial, literally a worthless man. Now, I don't know if you have been through the experience of coming under personal attack from some other individual particularly when the attack was a false accusation. You know, it's very difficult to deal with an accusation when the accusation is not true. And the accusations that Shimei brings against David are both false. David was not a murderer. He accuses him in this passage that he's responsible for the blood of the house of Saul. In other words, he's saying, David, you are responsible ultimately for the death of Saul, for the death of his descendants. You are responsible. But David was not responsible. In fact, David, on at least two occasions, could have taken Saul's life, and he said, I will not touch the anointed of the Lord. In fact, Saul 
ultimately commits suicide. He kills himself. He's not killed by David. He also accuses David of stealing the throne of Saul and now occupying that throne. And in effect is saying, just as you stole the throne from Saul, now your son has stolen the throne from you. You are getting what you deserve. Have you ever had someone talk to you that way? You're going through problems, difficulties. Maybe people are accusing you. And they say, you know what? You're just getting what you deserve. How do you feel at a moment like that? God had taken the throne from Saul, not David. In fact, David was anointed to be the king of Israel years and years before he ultimately ascended the throne. He had the right to the throne because he was anointed by the prophet Samuel in the will of God. But God allowed Saul for a period of time to continue as king. And the nation went downhill under his leadership. And there came the moment when they were about to go into battle and Samuel did not show up. The prophet did not get there when Saul expected him to arrive. And instead of waiting for Samuel, Saul offered the sacrifice to God that only the prophet was allowed to offer. And the Lord came to him and basically said this, Saul, because you have disobeyed me in this matter, I will tear the throne away from you and from your descendants and give it to another. I will give it to a man who is a man after my own heart. And that man turned out ultimately to be David. Samuel, in confronting Saul, he said this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Did you hear that? Were sacrifices important in the Old Testament? Absolutely they were. But God had said, Saul, you cannot offer the sacrifice. And so God says, what is more important? that a sacrifice be offered or that you obey me. And God says, you need to obey me. Because no sacrifice you offer that is a disobedient sacrifice will be acceptable to God. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You see what he's doing? He's making him understand that his rebellion and his stubbornness in the eyes of God were as evil as witchcraft and iniquity, which was a word for the worst and most horrible of sins, and idolatry, the worshiping of false gods. He's saying, listen, you may look at what you did as not significant, but in my eyes, the holy God of heaven, what you have done is great wickedness because you've rebelled against my command. This is 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 to 23. So the question becomes this, knowing the background now, why does Shimei come and attack David? David didn't kill Saul or his descendants, and David did not tear the throne away from Saul. God did. And I ask you this, why at such a difficult time in David's life did God permit yet another 
trial. I mean, is it not true that we have a tendency to want God to deliver us from whatever we're on? We, we really don't want him to send yet another trouble to our lives, much less two or three, and sometimes it happens. We need to understand why. We're getting there, all right? The second thing I want you to notice is reacting to the trial. I want to talk to you for a moment about the difference between reacting and responding because those two things are very, very different. Now, what is the reaction in the passage? Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Okay, that's one response, isn't it? Actually, that isn't a response. That's a reaction. What he says is, I'll take care of this problem. I'll get him out. His, I'll shut his mouth because I'll cut his head off. Abishai suggests that the best way to deal with this trial is to react to the trial and, in fact, to react very strongly. Let me take off his head. Is that the way you feel sometimes when you are falsely accused or attacked by someone? Have you ever thought, let me at him. Let me get it. How dare he say such a thing about me? It's not even true. It would be one thing if it was true, but it's a lie. It's false. What can I do to get this person? Get even with him. The problem in this scenario is that Abishai is reacting to the trial. He's not responding to it. Now, in your notes, I, I put a definition to try to distinguish between these two words. Notice it says that a reaction is a natural, unguarded, keyword, unguarded reply to a given situation without careful thought to the consequences. It is reacting immediately. It is doing the first thing that comes into your head rather than stopping to think about the consequences of what you're about to do. What usually happens when we react before we think? Does that usually turn out well? No, it doesn't. Look at the definition of a response. A response implies a thoughtful evaluation. That's a way of saying you stop long enough to think. Not just about what you want to do, but what the consequences might be of your actions. It's a thoughtful evaluation of the situation resulting in a, here's the key word, guarded reply to that situation. If someone walked up to you today... I mean, just walked up to you and slapped you right in the face. What would you want to do? I didn't say what you would do, but what, I, I mean, I hope. But what would you maybe want to do? I mean, ha have you ever had someone hit you and your first response was to double up your fist and get ready to return? Yes, sir. I mean, how many sinners in the place? Am I the only one? Well, there's five or six of us. Okay, we'll have a, you know, we'll have a little meeting after church and... Repent together. But what does Jesus say we're supposed to do if someone slaps us in the cheek? Turn the other one. Now that's just natural, isn't it? Isn't that just exactly what we think to do first? No, of course not. So my question for you today is this. 
Are you a reactor or are you a responder? Are you one that has something happen and you respond immediately, you don't care the consequences until they come? Or are you someone who says, I'm going to think about this and decide carefully before the Lord how I ought to respond to this individual or to this situation? Now, let's be honest and say that humanly we fail in this area quite often. But our goal must be to respond to what is happening to us. So, let's go on to the third point in the message here. Responding to the trial. How does David respond? Because David does respond. He doesn't react. I mean, David was a man who through the years had put many people to death. It would have been nothing for him to just walk up to this guy and kill him. He could have done that. And as king, having been cursed by a person of the land, no one would have questioned his judgment. No one would have. But notice how he responds. David entrusts his trial to a good God. And I want us to look at verses 10 to 12 particularly. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Now, frankly, looking at this passage just on a very surface level, this is complicated to understand, at least for me. Because when this man curses David, David, in effect, says, the Lord told him to do it. And if God told him to do it, who are we to tell him not to do what God told him to do? Now, the question becomes, was David right about that? Was he right that God had told Shimei to curse the king? To throw stones at him? David seems to think so. And then he appeals to God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want you to notice his response. The first thing is, we need to understand that our trials have either been sent directly or permitted sovereignly by God himself. Now, did you get that? They've either been sent directly. In other words, sometimes God sends trials to us. Remember when it says of Abraham, and the Lord tested Abraham? And what was the test? Take your son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. That came direct from God's mouth to Abraham's ears. This was a test sent from God. And at the end of that test, after Abraham came through in flying colors and he was ready to sacrifice his son but did not do so because God himself intervened and provided a ram as a, as a substitute, immediately after that, this is what God says. And now I know. And now I know that you are my servant, that you will do my will. He let him come all the way up to the moment of killing his son before he delivered him from the trial. But thank God, God did deliver him. Amen? 
And so sometimes God tests us because he wants to see what we're made of. He wants to see if we will trust him even when we do not understand his command or understand his will or understand his test. David says, So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. You see, I I think David was saying this. I believe that God has permitted this trial in my life. This is not a trial from Shimei. This is a trial God has permitted in my life Because he wants me to learn something through this. So what right have we to question God about our trials? We really don't have the right, do we? Because he either said it directly or he has known it would come and permitted it to come and with his permission promised to be everything we need to get through the trial. And I believe that's what David's life is going to teach us. I think David's response here teaches us that we must submit to our trials and learn the lessons God wants to teach us through those trials. And by the way, there are lessons that you learn in trouble that you never learn anyplace else. There are things about God and his faithfulness that you learn in the midst of trials that you won't learn anyplace else. You could read every theology book. You could dominate your knowledge of the attributes of God. You could know all the theology, but I want to tell you something. You won't know the experience of it until you've walked with God through the valley. That's where you learn who he is and what he's like. Most of us run from trials or we try to make them go away. We just simply want deliverance. I was thinking of a very famous, familiar illustration in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. You remember Paul writing in uh, Corinthians. He says that the Lord had sent a messenger of Satan... We don't know what that was, to be honest. We, we can't be dogmatic about it. Some think it was a, a, a physical uh, health issue. Uh, he apparently had trouble with his eyes, seriously, so that his eyes were constantly full uh, and running with pus and this kind of thing. It was a disease common to the time, and, and he apparently had this disease. There seems to be indications of it. I believe it was the Galatians who said that if they could, they would give him their eyes, suggesting that they would wish that he might be able to see well again. So that could be what it was, that his eye problem, every time he thought about it, every time he dealt with it, he was to be reminded of this truth, that no matter how much I suffer, God's grace will be sufficient in the middle of my trial. Some suggest that this messenger of Satan was literally one of Satan's demons who at moments in his life confronted him and caused difficulties for Paul. And we understand that things like that did happen to the Apostle Paul. But what I want you to notice is what was Paul's first thing to do once he received this messenger of Satan? He said this, I prayed three times. Now what do you think he prayed? 
Do you think he prayed, Lord, just give me your grace, which I know is sufficient. No, the Lord hadn't said that to him yet. You know what I think Paul said? Paul said, Lord, I'm busy for you. I've got a lot to do, and this is a hindrance to the work. Lord, take away the problem. He asked once, nothing happened. Have you ever had that happen? You ask God once and nothing happens? Then he asked a second time. And guess what? Nothing happened. He asked the third time. Something happened. You know what happened? God said, I'm not taking it away, but I'm giving you my grace, which is sufficient. How many love no as an answer from God? We don't, do we? But God's answer to him was no. And you know what? He dealt with whatever it was until the last day of his life and ministry for the Lord. He continued to suffer with that. But I want to tell you something. What he learned to focus on was not the momentary, but to focus upon the eternal. He didn't focus upon the recipe. He focused upon the finished product. I mean, how many of you would like to eat an uncooked cake? You know what? We don't want to eat the cake until it has faced the fire. Because when the fire is applied, the heat is applied, the cake takes a form that becomes a blessing to us. And I want to suggest to you that the trials and tests that we go through in the moment may look like yucky cake batter, but God can take the cake batter through the heat of the trial and the sufficiency of His grace and turn it into a cake with loads and loads of frosting on top. It doesn't mean he takes away the problem. But it means he provides the gift of what we need to overcome. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Boy, that makes sense, doesn't it? Brethren, be happy! Be joyful every time you have a trouble and problem. Say, James, where in the world did you come from, buddy? What planet? Because it's not natural to be joyful in the face of temptations. But he says, count it joy. Why? There's a reason. There is a higher purpose, a higher calling here. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience. The word there is endurance. The ability to persevere. If you are honest, you will admit that a lot of your problems never go away. It is God's grace to persevere that gets you out of bed in the morning. But let patience or perseverance have her perfect work that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. I mean, do you want to be that kind of person? Well, then rejoice in your trials because that's the only way you're going to get there. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The word there is trials, testings. That the trial of what? Of you? No. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Listen, your faith is precious to God. 
And he doesn't want to destroy your faith. He doesn't want to knock down your faith. He wants to build up your faith. He wants to strengthen your faith. God tries our faith to strengthen it, not to destroy it. Only a tested faith can bring real praise and honor and glory to Christ at his appearing. Now, there's one more thing we need to see here, another lesson. We need to commit our trials to God, knowing that He is both compassionate and just. I want to focus as we close on verse 12. It may be, says David, that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with what? With good for His cursing this day. The one thing that characterizes David in the midst of this trial is his confidence in the Lord as a compassionate and as a just God. And those two things are very different. Compassionate means a yearning that moves you to action on behalf of the one that's suffering. But God is also just in this sense. God has promised that he will defend his people. But we are sometimes too busy defending ourselves to let God defend us. And that's why the Lord said at one place, vengeance is what? It's mine, says the Lord. If someone mistreats you, if a Shimei comes to you and falsely accuses and attacks you and throws stones at you and curses you, if a Shimei comes and does that to you, God says, I will take care of Shimei in time. And we need to leave those kinds of people and those kinds of circumstances in the hand of God. Notice what he says. He says, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. He had this idea that God, when God looked down at him, he wasn't looking down with a bat in his hand. You know some people's attitude toward God is that he's just waiting for the moment when we mess up so that he can really give it to us. I want to tell you something, that is so far from who the God of the Bible is, we need to understand we have a compassionate God. And I want to tell you, even though when we sin, we offend His holiness, and even when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, I want you to know that it never makes the love and mercy and grace of God to flicker for even a moment. He says, I, I, I think the Lord will look down on my affliction. Do you know many times in the Psalms, the Psalm talks about how the Lord's eye is ever upon us? Aren't you glad that the Lord is always attended to where you are and what's going on in your life? God is not disappointed in your tears. God is moved by them. God is not disappointed in you. He may be disappointed in something you have done, but he's not disappointed in you. In fact, he loves you. And he's going to do everything that he needs to do to bring you back into the most intimate relationship possible with him. And then he says this, verse 12, the second part of the verse. He says, and that the Lord, he says, he just may repay me with good for his cursing this day. You know what he said? 
I have this idea that my God, who is a just God, will stick up for me. He's going to defend me. I'm thinking of what it says of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23. It says, who when he was reviled, what? He reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But here's the phrase that's so important. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Aren't you glad God has all the facts even when people don't? God knows more than what you did or didn't do. God knows why you did or didn't do a certain thing. And he can separate when you may do the wrong thing unintentionally for the right reason. In other words, your heart's in the right place, your mouth just didn't know quite how to do it right. And I want to tell you something, God knows when your heart's right in an issue, even when people may judge you. And that is what was happening again with David. The question is, are we willing to wait for God to vindicate us, even if that means we have to wait until we get to heaven? Tough sometimes. Very tough. So, I want you to know, notice the final point here, benefiting from the trial. What is the benefit? I want you to notice it says that David is wearied by the trial, but I believe it says he refreshed himself. He and the people refreshed themselves. I believe he refreshed himself in the Lord because he just talked about his expectation that God would act on his behalf. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, that is, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul's response to that is, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, when we lean upon the Lord, folks, He really is all that we need. He's all we need. Because His peace will fill our hearts and His grace will strengthen our spirits and lift us up. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Two verses that if you have not memorized, you really need to memorize these verses. Be careful for nothing. In other words, literally, don't worry about anything. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He said, listen, when you're in trouble, when, when you have anxiety all around you, what you need to do is you need to pray and supplicate. Those, those are two words that are, that are similar in our English in meaning, but they have a very distinct meaning in the original language. The one has to do with coming to God when you sense a need and presenting the need to God. The other one is coming to God when you know that God is the only one who can meet that need. And he said we need to pray in both cases. Even when we think we could resolve it, pray first anyway. 
And when you know there's no answer in you or in anybody else, pray to God because He is your hope. And when you pray that way, do it with thanksgiving. Why do you thank Him? You thank Him because you're saying, God, I know you will answer. In your time, it may take a long time, and I may have a lot more suffering to do in the meantime, but if I have a lot more suffering, I'll also know a lot more grace. God, I'm willing to trust you, and I thank you now for whatever you're going to do. And when you have that attitude, your heart will be filled with the peace of God that passes all understanding, because you will know everything is in God's hands. And that's enough. That's enough. So, are you a reactor or a responder? Good question. Are you filled with worry, anxiety, or are you trusting in a compassionate and a just God who will not only help you now, but he will ultimately defend you? Are you filled with complaints about your trials? <laughs> or do you submit to them realizing that God's higher purpose is to strengthen your faith? And when you face that trial, do you see it as an attack against you or as an opportunity for you? What is the opportunity? To come to know God in ways you've never known him before. Brethren, David went through a lot and he didn't always respond. <laughs> Many times he reacted in his life just like, can you raise your hand with me? Just like us. But aren't you glad that once in a while these people in the Bible got it right and God used that to help us say, you know what, if a David who messed up a lot of times could do it right, guess what? Even we who mess up a lot of times, we can do it right too. With his help. So, answer those four questions. But only for you, don't look at your neighbor. Alright, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word of God today and for the reminder that whatever the test and the trial that comes in our lives, that you are God, you always have been God, you are God, and you always will be God, and that nothing comes unless it's sent directly from you or permitted sovereignly by you, and with your permission comes your provision. Teach us, Lord, to be responders, not reactors. Help us, Lord, not to think of ourselves as being attacked, but as being given an opportunity. And help us, Lord, to remember that you are a compassionate and a just God. And perhaps, Lord, you will look down upon us in compassion. And perhaps, O oh precious Lord, you will repay us good for the evil that others have meant against us. Apply your word to our hearts today, Lord. We'll be careful to praise you for Jesus' sake. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon today. And tune in next week for another sermon from this passage. If you'd like to contact us, send us an email. And we will get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day.